Oh, hello, hello. 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 From Lo-Fi Arts, this is Refigure with Chris and Reefa. A weekly dive into our favourite bits of... Culture. Tech. And diversity. That's quite good. Sparkly, sparkly music. Welcome to Refigure with me, Christopher. And me, Reefa. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. It's lovely to have you with us. What are you saying? I'm talking to the other people. Yeah, no, don't say that. Okay. Pretend they're not here. Well, I've got to read this bit. Okay, fine. If you are enjoying this series, please hit... I'll try again. If you are in... if you're enjoying this series, please... If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Give us a decent rating or review. Please recommend us to friends who might be interested. So we've got lots of fun things to talk about this week, but first let's do the post bag. Thank you very much for recommending us, Nick Barnes. Really appreciate it, Nick. Thanks very much to Mr. D Parsons, who gave us a comment on our Instagram, which is Refigure UK. He asked, do we prep or do we... Uh, do we rehearse which would be quite a good thing i think if we just did a bit of a rehearsal no i told him we don't prep at all maybe we should and he said please don't prep it's brilliant as it is great dynamic and really enjoying them all which is super nice thank you very much for listening dan thank you very much dan parsons Uh, we also got a lovely comment from ruth oliver at the lighthouse in brighton she's ace and uh, last time I saw Ruth, she was wearing chainmail. But she said something nice as well. I'm not quite sure what she said, but she just liked the programme. She gave us a big red heart on Twitter. That'll do. That'll do. What's your main topic this week, Reefer? Do you want me to talk about it now? Yes. I thought we were going to sort of explain what we were going to talk about first. Yeah, you poo-pooed that. Oh, so this okay. is our actual doing oh, our, okay. our thing. Oh, OK. Right, 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 right. I'm going to talk about a six-part documentary series that's on... Netflix at the moment called Wild Wild Country. This is a documentary that came out back in March by the Duplass brothers, who you'll know from loads of other films as well. An Indian guru sets up a, an ashram, a spiritual centre in India, okay? And Westerns start coming to it, and this is in the late 60s, 70s, and they decide that they should go and set up a centre in Oregon. And so they find this piece of disused land. Nobody's using this in a really rundown little, near a little rundown little town. It's hardly anybody there. And it's extraordinary. The first episode is just amazing how they bring building materials out of nowhere. All these volunteers that are running off the energy of this amazing guru who gives them all this wonderful processes that they open up and they become more free in their life. They build this city really quickly as big as sort of a kind of, they've got an airfield, for example. So you start to get, when you're watching the documentary, you start to get involved already. You're like, wow, this is amazing. And of course the locals are going to hate it because all these hippies are coming to set up a city near them. And you're immediately, well, I was immediately on the side of the devotees of this Indian guru. Then it sort of unfolds this story over the next six episodes of what really is going on with what looks like a cult from the outside. However, the documentary makers are actually really well balanced. They talk to people 
who have survived the experience and who are around now who are really honest including not Osho himself because he's unfortunately long gone now off this mortal plane there's the main woman who worked with him the actual person that was running the organization really Martin Ann Sheila her name was she's still around so she gives her account of something that happened many years ago now and it's so candid and so brilliantly done and the devotees who absolutely love this guru but get involved with some pretty shady stuff and because I'm this sort of person I'm already on their side I'm sort of making excuses for them but also what's absolutely fascinating this is in the Reagan era so you've got all this clandestine stuff going on where the locals are trying to get politicians involved and it escalates and then the media are involved and it becomes this enormous battle to get this evil guru out. Even at one point when there's a trial, even the court artist paints, literally paints a picture of this Indian guru as if he's the devil himself. It's an intense documentary and after three episodes, I was like, I need to stop watching this now. It's very different to another documentary called Yogananda about Pramasana Yogananda, which is very sweet and full of like positivity. This was quite dark in places, but some really interesting ideas. And as a sort of person who knows about, you know, working with communities, they could have got this community involved from the start and talked to them and not... Um, I don't know, not created so much drama. It is an extraordinary clash of cultures. Once you realise that the authorities are closing in on this community, they don't act like one would expect, which is kind of pacifist, uh, maybe like lying down in the road or anything like that. They basically go and buy a shitload of guns and start training all their young people to do shooting guns. And they've literally got a massive shooting range on this thing. The current Osho movement put out a statement on their website and they distanced themselves from this whole thing and sort of said that it was all Sheila's doing. Yeah, she got um, blamed, didn't she, really? And there's a really, like, I felt for for Osho himself at the end where they sort of really broke him, basically, and did some really horrible things to him. But on the um, website, it says, in summary, one could say that he was an Indian man who wore a dress and an unusual hat who drove a fleet of fancy foreign cars around a city named after him in Sanskrit, where everyone will read, work for no money, but with only the love of a vision of a different world based on meditation, where there was no support for the family, private property or any religion, and where everyone was a vegetarian, right in the middle of redneck cowboy country. Yeah, clearly he had some energy, charisma and a taste for the ladies as well. Yeah, it is a brilliant series. So if you haven't already seen it, it's on Netflix. It's called Wild Wild Country. What's that beeping noise? It's my computer. Oh, I'm worried then that it was the recording device start again, going Start on. again, start what again? The whole thing? No, just that bit. Oh, yeah. So that's Wild Wild Country. If you haven't already seen it, check it out on Netflix. It's directed by McLean and Chapman Way and produced by the Duplass Brothers. Awesome. What's your main thing today? My main thing today is that all last week... I went on a course and uh, I haven't been on a course as a participant for maybe 25 years. If I ever get involved with courses nowadays, I'm usually like one of the facilitators or doing a workshop or whatever. So it was a fascinating thing to be a student with a bunch of young people 
and I was by far the oldest person doing this course. So I'll tell you what it was about. It was called Theatre XR, organised by Tom Tech, the technology wing of the old market in Hove, our local cutting-edge art centre. It's an excellent art centre. I think I've mentioned them before. Tom Tech looks at immersive technology from a theatre point of view. So this course was, it was really aimed at theatre makers, young up-and-coming directors and writers for theatre, it was a crash course in virtual reality and augmented reality and uh, immersive technology. It was led by this guy, Simon Wilkinson from Circa 69, which is a really big, well-known cutting-edge, Circa 69, cool name, uh, which is a really big cutting-edge immersive theatre maker. And Simon puts on these really extraordinary, complex, layered stories that take place sort of in real world, so you get led through stuff, but also in virtual reality using the new technology. And obviously virtual reality and augmented reality are both having a really big moment now as they become, people get more aware of it. Um, I really enjoyed it, I've got loads from it. I had the steepest learning curve. We got taught things like the software Unity, which is a, a computer system to help build computer games in 3D. And that was amazing in and of itself. But the main thing that I was there to do was to learn about storytelling and narrative and how this could be a new toolkit for storytelling. And it was very inspiring. We got uh, spot talks from people who've put on big bits of work. For example, I'll just give one example. Myra Appener came down from London to talk to us, who was the writer of the Somni experience in London, one of the biggest mixed reality things that's happened in the UK so far. Basically a kind of immersive walk through taking you on a psychedelic journey that included some bits of VR with VR headsets and some bits in the real world. It was amazing. And she kind of talked us right through not just the technical challenges, not just the theatrical challenges, but also the economic stuff. There are some really terrifying numbers about dropping audiences in all live performing arts but especially theatre, where the audience was already too old and too white, and that audience is literally dying, you know, that audience is fading away and getting too old to go to the theatre, and British theatre has so far, on the whole, failed to bring young, diverse audiences into live performance. And they're trying, they're working really hard to try and make their theatre more welcoming, to try and make the storytelling more immediate and relevant to young people and from more diverse perspectives. And lots of people are doing lots of things. But one of the big success stories is immersive experiences. And I think if storytellers out there could try out and get a taste of really good virtual reality and really solid augmented reality not just playing pokemon on a phone don't just look at a bit of porn in 360 if you see a virtual reality experience somewhere near you even if it's a bit pricey you have to try it out in decent conditions with decent equipment and decent stuff because it's coming it is huge every experience that i've had of virtual reality has been completely completely different which just goes to show that there is a lot of diversity in this particular sector. When we went to the Mogdiliani exhibition not long ago, um, they had tacked on a virtual reality experience at the end, which I found to be much simpler in many ways than other things that I've experienced. We got led into a room, lots of people were milling around outside and their audience definitely were scared of tech, basically. Yeah, definitely. 
So we get led into a room with very gently a little normal headset, nothing fancy, not like a big crash helmet, um, is put on your head and you are immediately transported into a beautifully rendered artist studio, Mogdiliani's studio. And you trigger with your head different um, stories, little bits of audio, actors playing parts in the Mogdiliani's life. You can really see the depth of like Paris rooftops outside the window. You see the whole room around you and there's a cigarette burning in the ashtray. And I swear I smell the cigarette smoke. So when I posted about this on Instagram, I just mentioned that and I was like, I wonder if the, I thought it was fantastic. And the person that put it on at the tape responded to me and just said, there wasn't any cigarette smoke, but that's what happens. You, your brain fills in the gaps. And that just blew my mind. Yeah, that Modigliani virtuality was really simple, but really elegant and beautifully done. So what next after that then? After you've completed, what are you going to do with all that knowledge? I don't know yet, but it immediately had an impact on stories I'm working on and kind of pieces of work that I'm creating. There's like what is now quite a small niche of a kind of artist that creates immersive experiences that at the moment is out there at kind of electronic music festivals and gaming festivals rather than in the mainstream arts world. But it's clearly at you some can't point... You can a small niche. It's just a niche. Yeah, you're right. You, can't... you are right. You can't have a small niche. Any kind of creative person should go and experience it so because they can use that to advance whatever kind of work they're going to do. It's, it's amazing. Ba-ding! There is something about learning and going on a course as well. You might be scared to go or you might be like, oh, I know all of this already. But I swear to God that every single time I've ever been on a course, there's something I've learned, even if it is just how to do presentations or courses better. Or I meet somebody who is a brilliant connection forevermore. That is a really good point. And funnily enough, I had a really busy week last week already scheduled. And then I got offered this chance to go on this course. I wasn't going to do it. And you said basically that you pushed me to do it. And I was proper nervous, like I haven't been for a long time. Ultimately, it was an incredible worthwhile experience. I do a quick shout out to people in Bristol and people in London that know that I also played a couple of gigs this week, not as me, but playing piano in my friend Barry's band. I'm not talking about that now because I'm going to talk about that next week after we've done them all, if you see what I mean. That's still unfolding. I think we should give a shout out to James Turnbull for organising that course. Yes, of course. I've done it now. Well, no, because also I want to plug our podcast that we're doing. So James Turnbull, who runs Tom Tech at the Old Market, uh, organised this course. But also James and I are doing a new podcast, which is called Story Hacker with an XR at the end, like Story Hacker. Oh, that's so clever. Yeah, it's so 2000 and late. It's so now. It's so now. And uh, so again, it's niche. It's really for people who are interested in storytelling and immersive technology but it will be coming out in the next week or two. So look out for Story Hexer wherever you are listening to this podcast. Actually, I'll plug it properly at the end as well. Okay. Also, Reefy, you had a photo shoot this week. I did. It was awesome. Um, what was it for? Oh, well, there's a terrible thing that you have to do in school social media and a website and everything else when you've got a business. So my photos are five years out of date 
and I thought I better get somebody to take my photo in various positions. Um, it's really traumatic getting somebody to take your photo. That's why everybody does selfies. Then you can control the environment and you can put your own makeup on and the lighting and then you can put loads of filters on it. But I really wanted some natural photos. I feel like I'm moving into a, another phase of my life that I can't have too much cheesiness on my website. So I wanted some nicer, more natural photos. I spotted somebody on Twitter and they have got an amazing portfolio. Their name's Emma Croman and they do natural photos using natural light. And she just came around. I don't know her at all. We had a quick chat on email and she came round to my house, which other photographers had never suggested that before. And this one was so normal and natural. It was like we made friends and really bonded in just two hours. And she even did some outdoor shots, but all of it was really kind of low key. And she sent me the photos the next day and they were perfect. They were really brilliant and lots of different looks, just fun and natural. Anyway, I don't know really why I'm telling you a lot about it, but I just really enjoyed it. I'd like to think that what I do as a mentor and as a person who puts on events, that there's some integrity in what I do. So that has to be reflected in everything that I present online. I just think as well that there's something about someone like myself who does a lot of different things. In Brighton, certainly, there's everybody's got some sort of day job and then some sort of side hustle. And I struggled for a long time about keeping all those different bits of me separate. But I feel like now's the time to sort of present them in a bit more of an integrated way. Well, you're much more relaxed now about cross-fertilisation. It's a small town, that's why. Yeah, it is a small town. But I think I need to start thinking global. What are you reading for? 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 Jingle! And what have you been reading this week? Chris? <laughs> this week I want to recommend an article that I read in the Daily Beast that's almost a month old, I think, uh, by Jeff Maish. He's a fantastic long-form writer of non-fiction. And the title, because the title's a bit clickbaity, so the title basically tells you what the article is about. Um, it's in the Daily Beast and it's called How an Ex-Cop rigged mcdonald's monopoly game and stole millions i've never ever not once ever eaten in mcdonald's but um apparently people who know mcdonald's know that through the 80s and the 90s they ran this massive kind of um lottery system like a competition uh, that was based on monopoly and you would like collect monopoly pieces and there were prizes and this guy was hired to protect it and make sure that nobody cheated and install loads of fail safes and also kind of look after the winning. Well, this is the bit that they went wrong with because they basically gave this bloke all the winning ones and he was supposed to divvy them up and send them out randomly to certain McDonald's, like make it all random. And basically what he did was he for fucking years <laughs> gave them to all his mates and then gave them to his friends of friends and then built up whole relationships, including with the mob, because lots of these prizes were worth a fortune. There was holidays and cars and million dollar prizes. That is and an awesome, awesome scam. I love it. <laughs> I love the, best, the audacity of yeah, it. Yeah, it's totally audacious. And he's also, he's not 
Somehow he got away with it for ages, <laughs> even though he's a fucking idiot. He trusts people who he clearly doesn't trust, which is partly why he gets immersed in the mob. Because once you've like given someone a prize like that, you've not only made them really rich or given them a prize, but they've also kind of got a blackmail thing on you. Because they know that you gave it to them. So if they get caught, you're fucked. And if they don't get caught, they can kind of threaten you to get... Anyway. They could just come back and go, give me another one. Yeah, that's what I mean. Because, like, <laughs> oh, you gave me one. Give me another one or I'll tell everyone that you're doing it. It's absolutely ridiculous. But it's brilliant. And also, of course, McDonald's were, like, covering it up like crazy when the no when shit. it got... Yeah, so <laughs> it's, a, it's a great story. Brilliant. It's on The Daily Beast and it's by Jeff Mache. I'm not going to repeat the title because I'm not going to say the burger chain's name again. So what have you been reading, Reefa? Fresh off the press, I've got my latest Tate etc. book. I love the Tate. I'm sorry I keep plugging them so much, but it's just really good quality modern art. Chit-chat in a magazine format. It comes out every quarter. And the article that I am currently reading is When Does Art Become Art? And it's written by John Paul Stonard, who is a writer and historian, and he's currently writing a book about the story of art from the Paleolithic to the present day. <laughs> short book then. Short book. <laughs> Starting with cave paintings. Essentially, he's discussing uh, Michael Craig Martin's quote that says, as soon as you make a piece of art, you're an artist, which is controversial in itself. What he's really saying in the article is that he feels more at ease when he can glance at the label on the painting and he feels more at ease if he sees that it's by Picasso or Van Gogh and then he kind of knows then at context that this is art you know because he's seen the name and it makes him feel more uncomfortable when he can't see the name or he's never heard of the person and then he doesn't really know whether or not he doesn't know how to react to it and what it made me think of was that of going around galleries well I hardly ever went to galleries with my family but I definitely started going on my own volition when I was a teenager and reading about art and learning about it myself and understanding that it doesn't really matter it's about how the art makes you feel and that's how you should always go and see a gallery and I had to be reminded about how important it is to kind of not be influenced by what you think you should be feeling about the art but just letting it wash over you and feeling that feeling whatever that is whether it's like feeling the uncomfortableness of seeing art that you don't like and that reminded me of a piece that's called um, No Woman No Cry that's at the Tate Britain and it's part of the permanent collection in the collection displays at Tate Britain. It's Chris Offaly's response to the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. And then coincidentally, I saw that Nicole Crystal Krensley, who is N Crystal on um, Twitter, she's the person, one of the founders of the Black Girl Festival, tweeted about how she took her young family to see this painting and how these young kids have this reaction to this painting of a black woman and it's huge and how excited they were about it and how they felt and the sadness that they felt when they learned a bit more about the Stephen Lawrence story and how that related to the painting. And I just feel like what you were saying earlier about audiences, about how all of these spaces that are traditionally middle-class are really struggling to get new audiences into their spaces, you know? And how do you do that? By having art by artists that wouldn't necessarily have been considered to be real art. You know, Chris Offaly is, as you may remember, he won the Turner Prize in 98. It's like what he got famous for really was for using bits of dried elephant dung in some of his paintings. Um, 
it's not correct it's not Picasso it's not what they think it should be but that for me is the part that makes it art that visceral connection with you that you feel if you feel something and you think this is fucking rubbish that's art that's done its job let the art speak first and then read the thing what I normally happens to me is that when I see a piece of art like one of Frida Kahlo's portraits which you rarely see in the UK see that up front and up close I get a proper like heart opening feeling of like I'm standing where she was standing where she made this painting she made those marks that's what I feel it's been a while since I've had a friend come down to Brighton where I get to show them my Brighton and I took my little cousin who is 20 years younger than me <laughs> 20 years younger than me and she lives in a small town so I took her to Moshimo and I took her to the Marlborough pub and she had a great time. Sometimes I forget living in Brighton how isolating it is for young people living in small towns all over the country and spaces like the Marlborough for LGBT people is really important. So yeah she had her eyes open she was absolutely blown away and decided to make some big life changes after that weekend. So I just wanted to say big love to my cousin Nida. Well, we're pretty much done, I think. On Thursday the 13th of September at the Marlborough Theatre, which is a theatre upstairs from the pub you were just talking about, I am running a little party to say farewell to my late night radio show and I've got three incredible acoustic artists performing. Olivia Aubrey is over from Portland, Oregon. She's been on tour uh, around the UK. It's her first UK tour and her first ever Brighton gig. She's an absolutely phenomenal indie folk singer-songwriter, a bit like Courtney Barnett or Phoebe Bridger or one of those people. Really excellent songs, quite radical, very interesting. She's headlining. Got El Morgan across from Southsea, who's a fantastic punk folk singer-songwriter in Southsea. And I've got Lewis McHale down from London, who used to live in Brighton. So it's a great lineup. Thursday 13th September, which is very, very soon, at the Marlborough Theatre in Brighton. Turn up 7.30, it's going to be a lovely evening. Also, two podcasts to quickly plug for you. If you're interested in narrative storytelling and virtual reality, and as I say that out loud, I realise that hardly anyone is, uh, <laughs> there's a new podcast coming up this week called Story Hacker, with an XR at the end. Me and James Turnbull taking turns to interview major players around the country and indeed the world in that industry. So that's going to be a series. And, and Nida's podcast is called... It's called The Nexus Escape. The straplines dive into the nexus, the corridor between worlds. Wow, that sounds great. So sci-fi and... What's it about? I think it's a, a big, long story. She's well cool, anyway. Your cars. And that's us done. What do you say to the boys and girls, Rifa? Goodbye! <laughs> Goodbye. Talk to you next week. See you later. Fine.